because there were no bystanders with NASA, they're all enablers. But at night, they would be sent alone to Nasser's room for treatment. Because when you start piecing it together, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. Welcome back to Parallel Justice, the podcast that dives into the crimes and cases that have dominated the national headlines through exclusive interviews with the very attorneys who fought the cases. Some of the discussion you hear today may be controversial. However, we know that silence, especially on tough issues, only enables and encourages wrongdoers. It's our goal to bring these issues to light so that we may have meaningful discourse around them. The views expressed in this podcast are those of our guests, who are experts in these areas. Their opinions are invaluable, however, they do not necessarily reflect the views of the National Center for Victims of Crime. The topics we discuss may be disturbing, and they are intended for adult audiences only. Some of these topics may also be triggering, and we encourage you to practice good self-care and seek support. I'm Renee Williams, Executive Director of the National Center for Victims of Crime, and your guide through this conversation. Now, let's start the show. Welcome back to another episode of Parallel Justice. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We have a different type of guest on today. I'm going to start out by letting him introduce himself, Amos Giora. You are a law professor. You are an author. And why are you joining us today? Tell us a little bit about you. First of all, thank you for having me. Indeed, my name is Amos Giora. I'm a professor of law at the S.J. Cooney College of Law at the University of Utah, and I thank you for having me for the pleasure, air quote pleasure, of talking about the topics we're going to discuss. I'm the only child of two Holocaust survivors. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I grew up in a home where the word Holocaust was never mentioned. When I was 12, my father took me canoeing. To this day, I don't know why canoeing, because he knew nothing about outdoors and sports, but we went canoeing. And he told me the following, in one minute, I'll tell you my story. In one minute, I'll tell you your mother's story. And this is the first and last time we'll ever have this conversation. And they meant what they said, and they said what they meant. Fast forward, I was training for the Salt Lake Marathon. And my running partner, who's not Jewish, we're in the middle of one of those awful 10-mile, 20-mile runs. She said to me, how did this, this being the Holocaust, how did this happen? And I had a brilliant academic answer, which shows you how smart I am, which was, I have no idea. And this was on a Saturday morning, and I came home Saturday afternoon in Salt Lake City, and I said, enough is enough. And I became autodidactic on the Holocaust. Obviously, you can't read everything. There are a million books. But there was one issue that, that quickly captured my imagination, and that's the role of the bystander. The person who was there saw harm caused and chose not to act. And so that led to the book, The Crime of Complicity, The Bystander and the Holocaust. Um, and I thought I was done with all this. And I had dinner with my publisher at the American Bar Association in Chicago a couple of years ago. And he said, what's next? And I said, you know, I'm done. I learned about my parents because the book really is about my parents. I know their story inside, outside. And it was great. And I now want to go back to writing about what I had always written about beforehand, which was um, counterterrorism, because I served for 20 years in the Israel Defense Forces. And that's what I wrote about. He said, yeah, but, you know, you're a huge sports fan. You've heard about Michigan State and USA Gymnastics and Larry Nassar. I said, I'm sure I have. He said, well, you've heard about the Catholic Church. I said, well, yeah, no, sure. Even though I'm Jewish, I have heard about the Catholic Church. And uh, I don't drink, but he must have plowed me with a big old piece of cake because we split a piece of cake, shook hands, and he said, there's your book. And I, like a total idiot, yeah, said, yeah, great. Went back to the hotel room, and I was like, dude, what is wrong with you? Um, make a long story short, um, I don't even remember how. I got to one of Nasser's victims. She's in the book. Uh, she's a Jane Doe. 
And we were talking and I kept talking bystander, bystander, bystander. Finally, she just had enough of me. And she just screamed at me, um, like, what is wrong with you? And I said, why? She said, because there were no bystanders with NASA. They're all enablers. We finished the call, Skype, went to, I teach a class on this. In addition to teaching at the law school, I also teach at the Honors College at the University of Utah. I went to my students. I said, hey, I'm writing about enablers. And they all looked at me like, you are, what is wrong with you? What is an enabler? I said, I don't know, but we're going to write a book. And then I quickly realized, or maybe not quickly, that nobody had ever written about enablers before in the context of sexual assaults. And I asked them two, primarily two questions. One was, what were your expectations? And the answer is to be protected. And what's, what are the consequences of not being protected? And the word that's in the book, it runs rampant throughout the book, is abandoned. And I, so they told me, I was the first person who would ever say to them, I don't really want to know about the assault. I want to know about the the enabler, the, the, call it the term I've learned now from a student of mine, the ecosystem. But they were relieved that I didn't want to know about the assault. Um, of all the people I've interviewed, two have shared with me the details of the assault, but they both told me, we know you don't want to hear about it, but it's important for us. And I said, I enormously respect that. Um, the others chose not to, and only we talked about the enablers. Those, unlike the bystanders, because the bystander is physically present, the enabler is not present, but the enabler is the person who knows or should have known about harm caused to an individual in context of sexual assaults. I think you bring up an important point and it's, it's, there are two themes we always hear from survivors and it's the first is always I'm coming forward because I don't want this to happen to anybody else. But the second is always to your point. They, they don't want to talk about the crime. Everybody gets bogged down at the crime in the act, but the bigger sense of betrayal they feel is from the institution. And it's because every single time it was supposed to be an institution that was there to protect them. And that's it's also an institution that they loved. Mm-hmm. I think that's also really, really um, important, especially the athletes, um, the girls. And I use the word girl deliberately because they refer to themselves and that's their victims. Many of them refer to themselves, not all of them, but many of them um, as girls, um, as a group of girls, right? Um, one of them who I've spent, I don't know how many hours with, um, whose name is Tiffany Thomas Lopez. She won an SB and she's been, I mean, she really is very prominent and she's just terrific. Um, we were um, Skyping, she, wherever she lives. And I was um, here in Israel and she suddenly grabs her throat. Like she's choking. And I'm like, Tiffany, like, what do I do? Like, how do I dial 911 from Israel to where she lives? Like, what do I do? She's like literally choking. She finally stops. And I'm screaming, Tiffany, uh, she finally stops choking, my God. And she, she, can't, she calls me um, Mr. G. And she says, um, Mr. G, this is how I wake up every morning for the last 20 years. And I said, like, what do you mean? And she said to me, um, they super effed me. And I said, who did? She said, the enablers. And that was a really powerful moment that she, Tiffany, Mr. Thomas Lopez, was able to articulate by Nasser. She's a Nasser victim 150 times. He doesn't occupy any real estate in her brain. The enablers, because she got um, manipulated off the Michigan State softball team by, by enablers when she complained. 
because it was more important to you know protect Larry Nassar and Michigan State, go green, go white, and all that. Well, to the point, I'm going to give you permission to say it because it is important to her. She Thank didn't you. say super F. She said super fucked. They super fucked me. And in um, that spirit, so Maddie Larson, who I've spent lots of time with, who I like a lot, Maddie was assaulted by Nasser 750 times. Th- that level of elite athletes, the girls travel around the world, right? And they would sleep two or four in a room. But at night, they would be sent alone to Nasser's room for treatment. And Maddie said to me, it's in the book, Maddie said to me, who the fuck sends a 14-year-old girl alone to a man's hotel room at night? And Maddie, um, she said to Nasser at her victim impact statement, by the way, if you want to see a great impact statement, I would put post the links to, to Maddie's and Tiffany's. Maddie looks right at, at Nasser and says to him in court, um, do you know how much I fucking hate you? Um, and from that moment on, according to Maddie, there's no anger towards Nasser. It, you know, she got it out. Is there anger at United States, USA gymnastics officials? Absolutely. But it's uh, the officials who, this sounds horrible the way I'm going to phrase this. They made her available to him. And so often, you know, sorry if anybody's listening has issues with the language, but these women's language was taken away. Their voice was taken away. And in a lot of instances, they got to address Larry Nassar. They've not gotten to address the University of Michigan. And the harm caused by the enablers. That, I think, is the, uh, the critical point that we as a society need to understand and recognize that enablers cause harm. But what is important here is that the, the, whether it's the tennis player or Maddie or, or, or Tiffany to understand through them the, the you are right, the, the real harm caused by enablers, not passive harm, active harm. How did you how did you identify the cases you wanted to cover and how did you narrow them down? I mean, there are stories until the end of time right now over the past 30 years of institutions betraying so, people. Uh, Jane Doe one, the one who told me about enablers is coming to bystanders, um, told me that some of the girls who they're represented by, John Manley. Mm-hmm. And I called uh, John's office and it took a while to find the time to chat. And I explained myself and I explained the project. And then um, John put me in touch with some of the girls and he then left it up to them whether they were willing to engage with me or not. The Ohio State guys, through a friend who put me in touch with a lawyer, put me in touch with a lawyer who got to the Ohio State guys. Um, Catholic Church. Um, yeah, one guy, I reached out to him on social media and he responded and he put me in touch with another. And then another person, I reached out to Walter Robinson, the Pulitzer Prize winner of Spotlight. Um, I cold called him and it turns out we have a mutual friend and uh, he was beyond gracious. And today I'm in touch with three or four on a, not say, not obviously not every day, but on a pretty regular basis. And the others, I fully understand that 
you know, they want to get their lives back. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think a lot of these people, I say this with, with obviously with great respect, don't want to be tagged as professional survivors. They want to move on with their lives. Um, but they're, they've been with me very gracious. Um, and then when I wrote the article, The Sea of Destruction, right, I reached out to an organization called Sesame and its president, Terry Miller. There are no words uh, to describe Ms. Miller, who put me in touch with an extraordinary researcher who's a um, professor of statistics, uh, Dr. Billy Joe Grant, who has all the statistics on teacher predators who are shifted from place to place. So in all these cases you've covered, I'm going to ask you a nuanced question because there's a follow-up to it. Okay. Separating institutions from enablers for a minute, mm -hmm. just a minute, because they're usually the same. What we see a lot of patterns that are the same, whether it's religion, whether it's schools, whether it's Boy Scouts, whether it's volunteer organizations. What's the common thread you see in grooming and in these crimes for mm -hmm. the enablers first, not the institutions, but the individuals on the ground? The perp or the enabler? The enabler, not the institution, because the institution is its own yeah, the enabler, special egg. The, I, you know, I, the enabler sees with their own eyes or hears scuttlebutt or see, combination that, you know, colleague X is acting inappropriately with student Y. Um, meeting with the student in their office with the door closed, um, having the student stay after school, that um, looking at, at a student inappropriately. Um, and then more often than not, when, when the discovery is made, oh, yeah, you know, I knew something was amiss, right? Um, there are those who come forward, um, shout out to them, but not really a shout out because they're doing what the law requires them to do. Um, I, mean, I don't think they get, you know, hero prize. Um, what do you think stops these people from coming forward? I think I mean, for some of them, there's discomfort vis-a-vis -vis a colleague. Um, I think some of them are concerned about being tagged as the, the whistleblower. Um, you know, snitches have stitches. I think some of them are concerned because the, the person is, the, the, the perp is respected amongst colleagues. Perhaps there's a natural or intrinsic hesitation to quote unquote, get involved. Um, maybe I'm misperceiving it. Maybe I got it wrong. I don't think, and you probably will know better than me, that they're thinking to themselves, the kid's enjoying it. 
I don't think that they have a prurient interest in what is happening, but by not acting, they're directly or indirectly, we could have a long conversation, uh, participants in the grooming. They see it at time. And, 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 sir, and many of the girls or guys tell me that they, they, they knew that other teachers knew. They know this. Um, I frankly see it as victim blaming as well. Not that oh, sure. the child you know wanted what? it, but the child, in, not that the child was enjoying it, but that the child was going willingly. I think also the, um, we said, you said we can say anything. Go for um, it. There's a certain amount of slut shaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She set um, him up. She lured him in. And they will also tell you this. They did have a crush. Mm-hmm. That's why you trust adults to act as adults. By the way, many of the girls tell me openly without any hesitation that the teacher who they had, what they thought the affair with, right? Mm-hmm. was um, charming, charismatic, and hot. Their words, not mm-hmm. my word. Um, it wasn't a geek. Look, I had teachers I had crushes on. They were adults. They knew that I was a child. Because when you're a child, you're not thinking of consequences at all, um, which is why you rely on adults to be adults. Or you know, right? Or you, at least you you assume that you can rely on the other adult to be an adult when the adult is not an adult. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the problems in terms of enablers, like you know, school principals and school administrators who don't want the blemish on the school record. Yeah, no, I think there are two different conversations here. One around peer to peer enablers. Why do they do it? Because we know why the Joe Paternos do it. The kind of seniority enablers, they're doing it to protect themselves solely or whatever institution they've created. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want the money. They don't. It's why the Catholic Church did it. It's why bishops did it. Yeah, at Paternal, I unfortunately wasn't able to get to the boys who were raped by Sandusky. Unfortunately, I tried. I couldn't get to them. Paterno had this bullshit argument. Oh, you know, I didn't know anything about male sex. I mean, come on, Joe. Um, and he was protecting Sandusky. He was protecting, you know, we are Penn State. And uh, he was protecting his program. 100%, which is the only thing that Joe gave a shit about. Mm-hmm. When you're talking to survivors, what do they, what do they want? How do they heal? And, and what do they need help to heal with? I think first and foremost, to be heard. Two, to be believed. Uh, three, that they're, they're, the time they chat, they take to meet with me will have practical consequences. Um, I think primarily that what happened to them won't happen to others. But there's also, as pissed off as they are, and rightly so, there's also, frankly, a lot of pain here. And I think that, again, because I'm the, the, really the first one to talk to them about the, the enablers, I think it presents them the opportunity to talk about something that's never really been discussed before. 
It's a relief not to have to relive when they talk with me. What happened? I mean, in terms of the attack. But to focus on the neighbor, I think there is a, there is a clean, not cleansing. It gives them the opportunity to finally, like, now they understand how they were. It's the trauma after the trauma or the double attack. So, um, and, I, and, I, and I think it helps them better understand how it happened. Because when you start piecing it together, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And you realize that, wait, if the teacher was taking me to his office behind closed doors, I mean, other teachers saw that the, the, the door was closed, right? Um, or if other teachers knew that I was getting, what do you call it, like extra credit, bonus points, I was known as the teacher's pet, um, and I was getting every award possible, where do we go from here and how do we improve protections for victims? One is we need to educate the public about enablers. Um, I do a lot of speaking in addition to teaching at the law school and teaching undergraduates. I do a lot of um, speaking in high schools. Well, I talk about this openly and I think it's something that the, the earlier um, we can discuss this, I mean, age appropriate and all that, right? But the earlier we can, the youngest grade I've talked to, the youngest grade I've met with is sixth grade. Um, and I just think that the, the earlier we can have this conversation, the better, that's one. Two, uh, there, this needs to be an inherent part of teacher education, but not in the sense of those, you know, training such just me, I mean, I say this, I respect the, the training and the manuals and all that, but real discussion about the enabler. It's not some, you know, um, video that you have set in your computer, check, check, check. We all know the damn answer. That's not, that doesn't do anything. But to have real, real discussions on this, um, where you meet with principals and teachers and you actually really, really discuss this. Um, and I would do that across the board with whether it's, you know, the Boy Scouts, the Catholic Church, the football team, the basketball team. But again, not those um, training manuals, which are online, which we all do them and fine. Okay, great. I think their impact is, is, is less than my hair and my hair is zero. Um, I think three, we need to have really serious conversations with senior university officials. Um, University presidents, they need to know this. Again, not a training manual, but, you know, president here and president there, or football coach here, or CEO here, CEO there, a lot of that. Um, I think there needs to be, through the media, social and or otherwise, to educate the public on this. Even if the public doesn't want to hear it, you know, boo-hoo. I think there's a clear need to educate politicians and, I mean, legislators, and I think that, that criminalizing this is important, it's critical, but it's, it's a piece. It's not the piece. Um, I think the more interaction with survivors to gather more and more and more stories, because I think their voices are, are extraordinarily important, a word I hate, um, extraordinary, I hate the word, um, but it's powerful. This is a topic that, first of all, sex assault, sex assault of children makes people extraordinarily uncomfortable to begin with. Um, 
and then the idea that that humans who are not monsters, who we don't get to portray as the Jerry Sandusky's, the the evil people, have some weight in this. It's it's not a comfortable topic of conversation. So how have these ideas been received? How was your book received? I mean, criticism is fair, right? That's fine. I'm accused of being too survivor-focused. As opposed to predator-focused? I guess. I was like, hmm. I've been accused by at least one prosecutor of being um, emotionally manipulative. Again, House, I, I, were I explanations I given or were we just throwing out phrases? People, that guy was in feedback that I gave in a talk I gave that Dior is emotionally manipulative. I'm sure you asked me, I'm sharing with you. Um, the survivor focus, yeah, I've heard that a lot. I'm like, yeah. It's true. <laughs> I'm bringing their voices to. They've been screwed. I mean, I, I, what do you want? Um, I, the notion of, of of criminalizing legislation. There's pushback on that because some people say that this is a this is legislating morality. Um, I mean, we have mandated reporters. Oh, I know. That's not legislated. Now, I know. I've been accused of, of creating something that or proposing something that will have unintended consequences and is not practical or applicable or implementable. I said, I don't know. Call me with prosecutors and go talk to cops. I mean, it's just mean, it's just got, got to work hard and, you know, make it happen. Survivors. Um, I mean, I. I can share with you my email. I mean, right. That people reach out to me from here, there and everywhere, including parents of victims, victims themselves, people who are, you know, my age, mm -hmm. your age, my age. Um, but I think more than anything is, I think this is the right phrase, shining a light on an issue that, has never been really shown before. Um, yeah, you know, I've been told that I'm, I've created a, a niche area. I don't know what the hell. I mean, I've been told that, and I appreciate the compliment, right? Um, but what motivates me, what gets me going early in the morning, right? Think about what time you get emails from me, right? Um, is, is, is the fight on behalf of survivors. All right. That is about all the time we have for today. But as always, I like to leave everybody with a last thought. So Amos, I'm going to let you take it from here. So first and foremost, Renee, thanks for giving me the opportunity to address the question of enablers um, and sexual assaults and the, the role they play and the harm they cause. If there are three things that I hope that the, the audience takes away one is to understand that enablers are important actors in sexual assaults. They're not some passive person who heard about it, but they play a real role. Two, that there are consequences to their actions. And three, that we absolutely must develop mechanisms to hold them accountable. Yes, it's a process, it's a slog, it's hard, but if we don't do so, 
then the harm that was caused five minutes ago to a child somewhere will be caused in five more minutes. And if we begin the process of addressing enablers, and if we begin to understand how important it is to do so, we can at least begin the process of addressing a profoundly important social, cultural, political, and legal issue. Well, I think you just summarized everything that we try to do at NCBBA in two minutes or less. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us today. And thanks everyone for listening. Please join us next time. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. If you have any questions about your rights after listening to the show, please visit us at victimsofcrime.org. Our guest's information is also always available in the show notes. This podcast was created by the National Center for Victims of Crime in partnership with our center and affiliate, the National Crime Victim Bar Association. More information about both organizations is available at victimsofcrime.org and victimbar.org. Thank you, and please join us again next week.